Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be introducing Ted Mixa with Mixa Honey Farm. He's also the chairman of the Florida Honeybee Technical Council. And the reason we wanted to bring Ted on today was because he is an amazing queen breeder. And um, Ted, you're also, are you second generation beekeeper? I am third generation beekeeper along with my uh, my other siblings that are in the in the bee industry. Yeah. Third generation. My grandfather's third. Yep. Amazing. All right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into beekeeping? Uh, well, pretty much born into it. I, I've uh, had the experience of growing into the business of my parents. Um, Back in 1936 is pretty much when my, my grandfather originally started in Western Pennsylvania um, for pollinating all um, apples in in Pennsylvania. He uh, he found really quick early on in in raising bees that the overwintering was really rough, so he st- actually started our outfit in migratory beekeeping to. Uh, the Carolinas to try to overwinter bees better. And he found that that's not far enough south to keep the bees from dying off in the winter. So then that's how we migrated to Florida. Um, My grandfather stopped having bees after so long. And my dad took over, obviously, traveling back and forth to Wisconsin uh, for honey and to Florida. And that was ni- about 1974 is when we purchased the land here that the farm is on uh, current day. We produced honey in Wisconsin and Queens all through that time to about 1997, where we found it more lucrative to stay in the state of Florida and produce queen bees all year long rather than chasing the bloom, uh, the honey flows, and we stopped traveling from there on. I always love listening to how folks get into bees. And so you guys found it more advantageous to just stick to queen production principally here in the state. Right. Uh, when you start looking at the, the, the numbers on, on what we were doing, how much it costs to travel and how many queens we were starting to, to sell, uh, our name got out there more and more on, on quality queens within the state. And uh, it just made more sense to stay for us. Uh, and, and for us kids, the, the family life of, of traveling a lot, it's hard uh, going to school and, and trying to, to, to get to Wisconsin to help the family business for honey production. It, it all, it all kind of made more sense to stay here um, in, in Florida year round after that point. So you guys, of course, are, you know, run a really big queen operation here in Florida. And Ted, one of the reasons we're interviewing you is because we're interested in hearing about the work associated with running a queen business. You know, we've got this series on how beekeepers make money 
the various different ways, honey production, pollination, queen production, et cetera. And I really feel like, you know, you're a really good and representative of, of the queen production industry. So could you tell us a little bit about queen production in general? And I do want to ask if, you, if you'll start off with, is queen production now 100% of your business or do you diversify? Queen production is 100% of Mix of Honey Farms. Um, we we have very little hives on the side for honey. If we if we make it, we do. If we don't, we don't. It's not. It's just for local sales for people that want to have local honey. But that's just a. It's just like a, an add on to to what we do. But we we try to provide. We provide mated queens and queen cells. 100% of our business uh, to make it go. That's amazing. So can you tell us a little bit just about how you market your queens? Um, do you only sell to people in Florida? Do you sell one or two queens? Do you normally sell in bulk? How does that all kind of work? And how do you market this? So yeah, uh, marketing for us, we used to advertise just in a, a bee journal and we stopped doing that because uh, we were selling out all the time and couldn't keep up with orders. So the advertising getting it advertising out there on paper for for people to see it was just becoming too much we'd have to say sorry we're sold out too much so we stopped doing the advertisements um having the quality queens and word of mouth beekeeping uh, beekeepers tell each other uh, where where the best places to get things are and that's that's one of the hard things the the staples of us to keep in business is to have a quality thing that people keep on telling each other, Hey, get them from mix of honey farms. They're, they're good quality. Um, we sell mostly in bulk sales, uh, commercial level numbers. So, uh, we have to kind of get, get those Queens and queen cells out of the state to make enough money. It, it, it's a little bit harder to just to sell enough Queens within the state of Florida to make the amount of money that, our business needs to sustain. So we sell all over the United States. Uh, we ship to California, Washington State, Maine. Um, obviously, we don't sell, we ship to Hawaii or Alaska, but everywhere else we ship. So Ted, queen production is not easy. I mean, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. You've done this for a very, very long time, and I've only dabbled in it kind of in my life as a beekeeper and as a bee researcher. The process of grafting queens and selecting queens and maintaining all the colonies necessary. I mean, just to have enough mating nukes to be able to produce thousands of queens and the timing associated with having to work colonies and all that stuff. It's just a lot of work. So let's just, I just want to ask some, you know, a basic question related to you and your business and your family business. And we'll, we'll just start with if, if your product is a queen. So what is your strategy for selecting queen and drone stock, your maintenance of that stock, ensuring that the stock is producing the, the level of product that you want to make sure and put into the hands of beekeepers. So uh, breeder queens, uh, getting quality breeder queens uh, is a is a huge thing. Finding the, the best, uh, how do you say it, the, the best providers of good stock. So we, we do have, um, Joe Latshaw has always been a really good uh, provider of really good artificial inseminated queens. They're not always created equal as far as like um, the quality of insemination. Uh, you may buy, purchase a, a queen for $250, $350, but uh, 
that the service of just inseminating has to be of good quality. So we make sure we go with proven over time breeders that we will buy in uh, in the fall time. We will assess all those those queens that come in, make sure that they're they're laying a really good brood pattern, and um, we will stimulate them with a little bit of natural pollen. Make sure that the quality that we purchase, that quality gets taken care of all the way till the time that we graft these these larvae. I believe that quality is generational when it comes to agriculture. In period, everything it can go from almonds, uh, any a, a fast crop like um, broccoli or any 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 crop. If you look back on where you got those seeds from it really makes a difference on what your next crop's gonna look like. So it, if you take the aspect of what you see outside and, and even within our own selves as human beings to bring the quality that you're looking at to make sense of the quality you need to bring to, to other people, it, it really has to integrate into what you're doing. So I, I like to kind of say that, um, if you have a, uh, a group of people, we, we, we all can live healthy lives. And some of us have hard, hard lives that, that maybe we, we choose to eat processed foods and we can still live and have a functioning life, but our quality of health sometimes is not as good as somebody else that maybe can afford good food or something like that. Um, I think if you look at that with uh, livestock, if you're gonna feed your livestock quality feed, you're gonna have a quality livestock. If you don't have it, that quality feed or, or a place to put the bees that can get quality natural food, um, which is the best food for them, obviously. If you can't get that, um, your next generation may not be as good a quality. So if you can maintain a quality every year, every time you're going to produce something, you're always gonna have a product for your customer that can undergo any stresses that it may encounter in its lifetime after it leaves you better than another product that may not get the same um, attention. So if, in other words, if you're not taking care of your queens all the way from your breeding stock, your drone source, all the way up, you may not have a quality product that can withstand the stresses after it leaves after it gets to the customer and leaves to be a productive hive for somebody else. So um, all of that in a whole is probably, I'm not sure if I, I, I may not have answered your question yet, and I apologize, but to look back and say the selection and keeping those breeder queens, the startup queens, the drones, it all has to do with how you take care of them and how the last person took care of them. Uh, so looking where you get that stock from, how you take care of that stock and going forward is what we look at. Yeah, I think that's that's a great explanation. I think it's a great comparison, you know, it not just with, you know, humans and what we eat and, you know, how we can take care of our health, but also from that livestock agricultural perspective, right? And so, yeah, I appreciate just thinking about the quality and making sure that everything is up to the standards. And, you know, it obviously shows that you are and have high quality queens considering, uh, you know, marketing sometimes is even too much because you sell out of everything, which is, I think is a good problem, right, Ted? 
It's a good problem to have. Uh, it's yeah. a stressful problem because you want to say yes uh, right. to everyone that you can. It's not even the, the the ending, the money of it. It's like you're you're providing uh, the husbandry, the helping of the whole system of America's food process. And the more that you can help so, the next person along, that helps the whole system uh, function. So then it comes back to you. You may never see the math on how it does, but everything comes back around. If you can put out into the, the universe something great, the, it should come back to you and you can still have that, that greatness too. Yeah, for sure. So that leads me kind of into my next question. You know, Jamie had kind of mentioned earlier just about the challenges and, you know, how difficult it can be um, for people with the success rate of grafting and just working with queen breeding in general. So my question for you is, what are some of the biggest challenges you face with the queen breeding industry? Um, the changing... The, I would have to say the changing environment around you uh, is huge. So if, if I look back historically within our own uh, queen operation, the honey flows have changed. We used to have to extract honey out of our mating nukes because we just made so much extra excess feed and those nukes would bog down. And I'm talking in the 90s and the early 2000s. Nowadays, we're not we're not seeing that we don't we don't pull honey from the nukes we're feeding them constantly so the environment around us is changing so we have to adapt all the time to to provide for our bees the uh, what the necessities to to have the quantity and quality uh of queens come out of those mating nukes that they once had because of the changing of flows or the environment around us it really takes a toll on your out, outcome. So maybe uh, in the early spring, it's not so hard because we have good honey flows as getting acceptance of uh, queen cells in our mating nukes. So then when we go along a little bit farther in the year, we have the heat stress, we have less uh, natural flows coming in, a pollen dearth uh, a little bit here in central Florida, that it really takes a toll on the uh, acceptance rates of the of the queen cells to become mating queens. So, looking at those those factors that we have to try to change our management from what it was years ago it is that year to year to change what you're doing constantly. Troubleshooting is huge for any agriculture business, and it feels like in bee the bee industry because bees are our fast rate uh, growers, you're not looking at, oh, I'm producing a cow, uh, cattle, and it takes, you know, a whole year. Uh, the long, the long term, bees are turning over so quickly. You, your troubleshooting is in, in, in a quick time pace. So when you're looking at productivity, you're really having to tweak and experiment a lot more to try to make those outcomes become, uh, in your favor more and more. I think that's one of our hardest hurdles to overcome all the time. The other, uh, I, I would say one of the, the hardest things of Raising Queens, it, we compare it to we're the, we're the dairy farm of the bee industry where we have got to, do, uh, we just say we have got to graft on certain days, no matter the, 
rain or shine. We have got to cage queens. So it's kind of like that that pace of um, there's no time for anything else at certain times of the year, like like milking cows. We are very um, demand. The bees are demanding it. Uh, the customers in demand, not say they're demanding it, but to get them the product they're asking for, it's very demanding, very time timely process. Ted, it's funny, the whole time you were talking about that, I was about to say from the outside looking in, since I'm not in the queen production business, to me, one of the greatest struggles would just be the time. And it's funny, you mentioned dairy farmer. My grandfather was a dairy farmer and that's where I kept my bees on his dairy farm. And I know that that's a unique business where it's very timed. You can't get out of synchrony. And I know we rear bees here in the lab, some with what we call an in vitro protocol. And I know that of all the stuff that we do, that's the, the most time demanding because you have to be here nights and weekends. And when it's time to feed, it's time to feed, regardless of if it's a holiday or a birthday. And when I look at queen production, I kind of see the same thing. Like when you start the colonies, when you start the graft, when you start the movement of a cell over into a mating move, it's just time. And, you know, rain, cold, whatever the time of year, hot, whatever, whether you don't feel good, whether you do, all of that stuff really doesn't matter because it's a timed business and you have to progress through that. And I think you totally hit the nail on the head there. It's just at least from the outside looking in. And it looks to me like that was the greatest challenge because of the scheduled part of it all. Another thing that looks difficult to me, I remember when I uh, first started working on my degrees in the bee world, I was working with some queen breeders and small hive beetles were such a problem. And I think about just the, the effort to keep mating nucleus uh, colony or mating nukes up to par so that you can continue to feed queens into those things just looked like a lot of work to me. So, so what do you think about all of that as well? I mean, it just, I think you're exactly right on everything you said. I agree uh, that the maintaining, uh, like, like the ending part where you said the nuclear, you know, making, maintaining the nukes, it, 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 that's a changing process, the changing process to keep them going on a whole year. When we start uh, producing mated queens here, uh, we're gonna start caging our queens here this first week of February, second week of February here, somewhere in there, de depends upon the weather. Um, and going till October, that whole time period, you're, you have to maintain those nukes and it, things change. When it comes about June, July, you have to set aside more brood to leave in those nukes. Otherwise, that population generation gap, you, the, those nukes may falter. So you have to know when that's going to happen and adjust all the time for nukes. Mate, that is uh, very true what you mentioned there. I think the other thing, like where you are specifically in central Florida is that you're also a little bit weather dependent and you're, you guys are doing so much work during a time of the year where it's so hot or so rainy or, you know, hurricane move through and all that stuff. So you guys really do work hard to, in this business. So that kind of leads me into my next question, which is if, if you're, you know, given everything that, you know, all these years and decades of experience, this, this family experience that you have in this business, What's some advice you have for beekeepers interested in getting into queen rearing? And remember, we've got listeners from all around the world. So it, it, they're all curious, you know, hey, this is something I wanted to do. What What's some advice you would give folks wanting to dive into this? Well, I know. Uh, so the advice would be um, 
the style of beekeeping or how you would like to manage your hives will depend upon how you will go about uh, figuring out how you want to produce your queen cells and then ongoing to the, your, your mated queens. There's, there's many different ways to do it. Our, our way isn't the, the perfect way and it's the way of the, that we, we find good for our management. I would, I would say the advice is to find, educate yourself and find what works for you in your environment because it's uh, an experiment a lot. Um, we, we raise our queens in a, a starter and finisher all in one um, and other people don't like it and they don't find the outcome as good and they have, they have a queen right a call, um, cell starter and they, they switch things around and it works perfect for them. I think it's, it's going to be when you start up, look at everything and, and make your own out of it. Um, you ask 10, uh, 10 or 15 beekeepers the same question, you'll get 10, 15 different answers. And then you go home and you make the 16th answer when you know, you're the 16th, you, you make the 16th answer. So I, I would say, make it your own and observe. Observation is huge. You know what, Ted, I'm going to start saying that to people now, you know, go talk to 15 beekeepers, you'll get 15 different answers, go home and create that 16th answer. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to segue a little into a different topic, but in my introduction of you, um, you know, you are the chairman of the Florida Honeybee Technical Council, and you play a very important role in that council. And so I was wondering if you could tell our audience, you know, just a little bit about the Honeybee Technical Council, what it is, kind of what your role is and um, how it impacts or affects the industry. So uh, I don't have a date uh and i don't recall a date I, I probably can ask my dad he did help um he was one of the first uh helpers in finding the honeybee technical council they're they're there for troubleshooting and being a voice or uh, a bridge between government and and the the beekeeping industry within the state of florida so it's, in other words if we don't tell them there's a problem they will never know there's a problem to make a legislation or ask for funding for certain things that we, we may need as an industry for, for say, research or, or uh, board. At one time, it was uh, quarantining borders for tracheal mites or anything like that. So this technical council would, would be an advisory of different voices of Florida industry, beekeeping industry of say honey production, queen, queen raising, uh, packers, uh, and stakeholders that then would give advice to the, uh, with, with the help of the inspection service would then help advise the, the commissioner, agricultural commissioner on helping us as an industry in Florida. Well, Ted, I'm excited. I'm, you know, I'm interested to know, especially from our listeners, if there's a technical council, um, for or in their state or in their areas, wherever you are in the world, it'd be interesting to know, you know, if you all have um, councils that also help kind of bridge that gap. So Ted, thank you so much for your role um, in being that voice for the beekeepers. You're welcome. And it, and it, it is hard to, to listen to everyone's, uh, you know, because you have different types of beekeeping all the way up from hobbyist level to commercial level and that gap to fill uh, 
to, to feel as if you are going to get the, that voice up to make a difference mm-hmm. sometimes is the difficult part of being on a chair of, of such advisory board because you want to feel as if you're getting that voice and getting heard. It's probably probably the number one thing for anybody in a position. Yeah, absolutely. So my last question for you is, what is your favorite part of being a queen breeder? Oh, man. Uh, I like I like figuring things out all the time. Um, any new knowledge that I can get that may be uh, something to help me produce a better queen or tweaking this to, to have. I love the troubleshooting and changing of my job throughout the year. Um, and, and it's humbling. It's a very humbling job. It takes a lot of work and you got to love it. Uh, but the humbleness of producing queens that then um, I sometimes look at the grocery store and see the people purchasing fruits and vegetables around me. And I, I, I like that thought that I may have helped produce that queen that helped my, my customer produce bees to go to pollination to help produce that fruit, that vegetable for the person I just seen in the grocery store. So being part of that, it, I like it. I, I love it. Yeah, that's amazing. It, you know, it's, I love the food industry and just seeing the whole cycle of, you know, where it starts. A lot of people forget about that B part, right? And so like, we're here to make sure that we advocate for our industry. And so it's really great to be able to speak with you and it's good to know. And it's heartwarming to know that, you know, you do feel good about that and you know, your role in the industry. And so we appreciate that. I think some of the quality things on, on future quality is also when I say, look at ourselves as human beings as we can live a life but it's not always a quality life and if it's generational you look back at and I hate to say this because it kind of points out some of the bad things of humanity is that if a mother chooses to be an alcoholic during her pregnancy that's science has proven the development of that child is not going to be as well as another child that didn't go through that same um, environment of having a mother with that had an alcohol problem. So he's born or she's born, the baby's born with that quality of life already. So what if you looking at the environment that the bees have got to be put into and then taken out of in their development stage, are we doing, we're doing the same thing to them in what they may be encountering in their development stage. So when you're looking at raising queens, what are you what are they being put into? Uh, what kind of environments, uh, stressors are they being putting into to have the best outcome for the next generation? So like, like going back to the, the human, the, the baby that may have encountered the, the alcoholic mother, it's still, it's still gonna live a life. It's gonna have a rougher life because they show that the, the brain development's totally different. And, and if the bees are also gonna go through a struggling time, because of what they encountered, it makes sense that we we need to do something to help every everything that we can for the best outcome for our bees and for for the food chain itself. Yeah, I think that was well said. Well, Ted, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I think it's going to be a good episode, and the beekeepers will really appreciate listening to it. Thank you. 
It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Welcome back to the question and answer time. Jamie, the first question, it's a theoretical question. <laughs> so I can't be wrong. That's good. <laughs> yeah. So theoretically speaking, uh, so this person said it's, uh, well, they know it's all important, which it is. But if you had to choose one, which is more important, the queen or drones genetics? <laughs> what are your thoughts? And, you know, what has a bigger impact of that long-term survival and the traits of those colonies? Okay. What an interesting question, right? So yeah. here's how I'm going to answer it. I would argue that theoretically, the queen's genetics are more important at the colony level, while they are equally important to a drone's at the individual bees level. And so let's take it from two perspectives. If this question is saying, you know, how important is it for a single bee to have a good mother and a good father? It is equally important because that worker bee is half her father and half her mother. But at the colony level, a queen mates with multiple drones. So the only thing that all the workers share is the queen's genetics, right? So all the workers in a colony are half the queen, but they are also all only half of one of 20 or so drones. Mm -hmm. So you could argue that if you want the trait in most or all of the workers, it would have to come from the queen because the queen is open mating with the drones and there are lots of different types of drones represented in the nest. But from a queen breeder's perspective, they are trying to control this from both angles, both from the queen as well as from the drones. But if you're looking strictly at the colony level, the queen is the only one who touches every bee in the nest. A given drone does not touch every bee in the mm -hmm. nest. Mm -hmm. So, but, but still, I, I feel like that can be a faulty way of thinking about it, given that still it takes drones to produce all the workers in the nest, even though it's multiple drones. So I would argue that it's easier to get the queen's genetics right and really mess it up with the drones just because you have to do well with more drones than you do with a queen. So you could argue based on all of that theory <laughs> that the queen is more important in this particular case but for any one worker it would be both they would be mm -hmm. equally important mm -hmm. all right i buy it okay i'll accept <laughs> that as an answer <laughs> i hope it's right <laughs> that's a good answer thanks i'm going to use it's, that when the next time someone asks me <laughs> yeah all right so for the second question this kind of uh piggybacks on that first question that we just discussed as far as the queen or drone genetics and this question about instrumental insemination. So, well, it is, but it's not. So the person does instrumental insemination and they have a strong colony that, you know, does really well, but that colony is a little bit more angry than most colonies. So they're wondering if they grab drones from a calm but productive drone producing yard, will that overcome the defensiveness of that, you know, original colony from that mother colony. So which traits would dominate in that sense? 
So bee breeding and genetics really are fascinating topics, right? And now we, we just talked, I just mentioned based on answers to the first question as well. The queen is the one who's the mother of everyone in the nest. So if you had to choose a single important individual who's important for the behavioral survival traits, et cetera, of all the bees in the nest, it'd be the queen because it's lots of different drones that are contributing to the workers, but it's one queen that's contributing to all of them. That's what they all have in common. Well, then the questioner elaborates and says, okay, well, I've got this defensive colony that I'm wanting to rear queens out of. If I just grab some drones from calm colonies, can I use their semen to instrumentally inseminate the queen mm -hmm. and get calmer colonies? Well, there's a lot going on in this question. So I'll, I'll try to be brief, but there's a couple of ways that I think about it. It's kind of really a nature nurture argument. So the, the, the the nature part is like like what are they getting what genes are they getting how are genes responsible for these behaviors nurture is the environmental impact so i'm going to do the environmental impact one first i'm aware of a research project that was done some years ago that showed this was crosses between african and european derived honeybees that showed even if a small percentage of the workers in the nest were african derived their defensive behavior influenced the behavior of the European-derived workers in the nest. In other words, they all had the same queen mother, but because a small percentage of them have a, had an African-derived drone father and they themselves were defensive, that influenced the behavior of the other worker bees in the nest. So just having uh, a queen mate with just a, a small number of African-derived drones was potentially enough to make the whole colony defensive, even if it was predominantly European-derived colony. So that's just an environment of where a few workers can influence the behavior of lots of workers. But I answered actually answered a question very similar to this for the American Bee Journal a, a couple of years ago. And what happened is because I'm not an expert on this topic, this question I ultimately kicked to Dr. Ernesto Guzman Nova, who's at Guelph University. And he and colleagues, Rob Page and Greg Hunt and others, actually wanted to study the inheritance of defensive behavior in honeybees. And what he found, he and his colleagues consistently found, and this is, this is going to get a bit technical, but it, it will make sense by the time I'm done, is that hybrid colonies that had European queens inseminated with African drones stung leather patches more than when they had African queens mated with European drones. Hmm. And so what they concluded is that the paternity of the offspring influenced the defensive behavior more than the maternity. So the questioner is saying, I've got a defensive queen stock, but if I instrumentally inseminate um, her offspring with gentle drone stock, will that reduce the defensive nature? And according to Dr. Guzman uh, Nova's paper, the answer is yes. It is more likely to reduce the defensive behavior than increase the defensive behavior because they hypothesized that drones are more responsible for the defensive trait than are queens. They didn't know exactly why. They had tried to um, hypothesize for that. But they consistently found that when workers had an African paternal ancestry, they were more mm -hmm. likely to be defensive than when they had an African maternal ancestry. That's so, so nature, nurture.
Yeah. I wonder if, you know, I mean, just even outside of the defensiveness behavior, like other traits, you know, that beekeepers will breed for, I wonder if that would hold true as well. Amy, I'm virtually certain across the genome, there's probably other examples of things like this where the queen is more influential for certain traits and the drone is more influential for certain traits, right. and, or it's a complete wash between the two for yet again, other traits. I just, mm -hmm. you know, Amy, bees are never, honeybees are never ending source of just questions <laughs> yeah. and fascination. It's it, When we do this Q&A stuff, it's really incredible what comes to surface. And I, I just look at this paper, you know, it's it, why, why would, why would it matter if the mm -hmm. drone or, or the mom or the dad was one or the other? Why would that <laughs> more significantly influence it? But it seems to, and it's, it's just so interesting. So when the questioner was asking, they might've been asking from a benign standpoint, but it's really, it's, there's really an answer here and nature yeah. and nature nurture plays an important role. All right. So for the third question, this person's asking, uh, when they're monitoring a percentage of the entire bee yard, so the entire apiary, some of the colonies show high mite loads, others show low mite loads. How many colonies uh, should be treated? Yeah, this is such a very subjective thing because there's not going to be a whole lot of research to support. There's a little bit that I've that I've read and the, the numbers that I'll be using actually come from that research. But it's it's funny, I mean, because we had a question a lot like this uh, a few episodes ago where someone was saying, you know, I had two colonies and one was very mm -hmm. high and one had negligible mite loads and I treated both. Should I have treated both? What would you have done? And I think my recommendation was, well, if it were me, I would have treated the high one and not treated the second one. Well, in this case, that's kind of exacerbated or, or scaled up to the apiary level where there's more than just two colonies. So let's just pretend that it's a standard commercial apiary of about 30 colonies. If I, it's, gosh, it's such a subjective thing. So at the end of the day, it's essentially, what do I recommend? What would I tell beekeepers yeah. asking me this directly? What I would say is if somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of the colonies in an apiary have exceeded the threshold, that's three mites per hundred adult bees, I treat the entire apiary, especially if those that did not exceed the threshold we're somewhere in the one or two mites per hundred bees. Here in Florida, we've looked at some population growth models and curves for varroa populations in our colonies. And even though three mites per hundred bees is the economic threshold, once a colony hits one or two mites per hundred bees, they will most likely be three mites per hundred bees next month, right? So it's, yeah. it's only going to take 30 to 45 days for them to reach the threshold. And since a third of the colonies have already reached the threshold anyway, you'd be treating and some number of the two thirds are at that one or two level, you know that it's imminent. I think an apiary wide treatment would be more warranted mm -hmm. in that particular case. If on the other hand, that third of the, the colonies in the apiary just exceed the economic threshold and the other two thirds in that apiary or, you know, are below one mite per hundred bees, I might consider doing it on a colony by colony basis. But in, in my experience, most of the time when a third of your apiaries have reached the threshold, sorry, a third of your colonies have reached the threshold, the other colonies in the apiary are going to be right at it or just below it. And it mm -hmm. probably is better, certainly from a commercial beekeeper and economic perspective to treat the entire apiary. Yeah, definitely. I think this is it's like one of the things I love about uh, asking and answering questions about bees. I mean, today's segment was all about theory and being subjective <laughs> and it really all just depends, right? It depends on 
what's going on. And I think that's why people love being beekeepers. They love to problem solve and they're good problem solvers. And um, so I think it all just works out, but yeah, those are great questions. All right. If you have other questions, don't forget to send us an email, uh, honeybee at ifis.ufl.edu or send us a message on our social media pages at UF Honeybee Lab. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at UF Honeybee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Boo. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Boo and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.